morning. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll finish up that chapter by handling the last paragraph. And while you're turning there, I want to mention something about the Dowers that you probably don't know, and that is that every year, and for years and years they've done this, they've sent the office staff a Hickory Farms gift pack at Christmas time. And the, the postman or postwoman uh, knows enough now that when they see that thing in the mail, they just open the door and throw it in because the staff just jumps on that thing like a pack of hungry wolves. It's uh, deeply appreciated, so thank you. Uh, before we get to reading the passage, I would like to take a brief moment, though, and, and just pray for those in Fullerton. Uh, some of you who listened to the news this morning know that a, a truck uh, went up onto the sidewalk last night and took out about 11 people, two of whom are in critical condition, the rest are injured, but um, let's pray for them right now. Lord, we feel so bad about this news, and yet we pray that this event for the believers, if there are any in that group, would cause them to, to lean into you, to find their rest and their comfort and their strength in you. But for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that this tragedy would actually become a great opportunity for them to see you uh, like they've never seen you before, to reach out for you in a way like they never have. So, Lord, help them. Now we pray. May all all the words of these songs that we have sung this morning, uh, may, may those truths be very apparent to them. So... Uh, Bless them. Have mercy on them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Thus far, God's word. The discovery of a moth-eaten garment is, to say the least, disappointing. To one day suddenly find a little network of holes in a favorite jacket or a sweater or a pair of slacks can be absolutely maddening. It's especially sad to find that Moths have taken to a favorite item of clothing, like one of my Sunday morning vests, woolen vests, or a treasured item of clothing, like my dad's uh, Eisenhower jacket from his days in the U.S. Army, which is trying to be patched up by a local uh, tailor. The ironic thing about a moth-eaten garment is how something so small, those tiny and sometimes almost imperceptible little holes can compromise, <laughs> excuse me, and even ruin an entire garment, making it either unravel or entirely disintegrate. Now, uh, to discover that a garment has been moth-eaten does not mean that it has to be discarded. 
because it can be uh, carefully displayed for historical purposes or gently folded up and put away for sentimental purposes. But it does mean that the garment cannot be used for its intended purpose, which was to be worn. The Philippian church was in danger of becoming spiritually moth-eaten. Now, I, I say in danger and not actually moth-eaten because on the one hand, they were still realizing their intended purpose. Uh, the Philippians were partners with Paul in the gospel, prayerfully supporting him, personally supporting him through Epaphroditus, financially supporting him. And the Philippians were beloved by the apostle. And we especially see that at the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, um, no, I'm sorry, where Paul wrote that he held the Philippians in his heart, chapter 1, verse 7, and yearned after them, verse 8, as well as at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 1, where we read uh, that uh, uh, Paul said of the Philippians, uh, they're my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. But on the other hand, this church possessed moth-like problems that could lead to their unraveling. That's implied in verse number 27 and is explained all the way down throughout the remainder of this new section, which ends in chapter 2, verse 18. So uh, the sermon's preached next week by Rob Price, and the week after that by Eric Tonis will further clarify Paul's concern for and correction of the compromised state in which the Philippians found themselves. So what specifically was threatening the spiritual fabric of the Philippian church? Well, two things. First, um, inside the church was this pervasive me-centeredness. Me-centeredness, characterized by selfishness and conceit. We see that in chapter 2, verse 3, as well as a dissatisfaction, chapter 2, verse 14. Well, from, the out, from outside the church, there was a relentless opposition that had led to certain suffering for the Philippians, possible death for Paul, and crippling fear for the church if they persisted in this me-centered condition. It's interesting to see just how thin the line is between Paul's praise and the Philippians' peril. On one side of the line, the church was realizing their intended purpose and that with their sleeves rolled up, while on the other side of the line, she possessed the potential to unravel altogether. And like the church at Philippi, our church here in La Mirada runs that same danger of becoming spiritually moth-eaten. I don't mean to say in danger of going away, but I do mean to say overwhelmed by a me-centeredness from within that would incapacitate us from combating the uh, opposition from without, thereby keeping us from realizing our intended purpose as a church. Again, it doesn't mean that we would go away. We could last another 50 years and be around to celebrate our 100th anniversary. But more like that of a moth-eaten garment on display than as a gospel proclaiming, equipping, 
nurturing, sending church, transformed by the redeeming work of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So to strengthen the Philippians, to to keep them from unraveling, Paul exhorted this church to stop being me-centered and to start being we-centered. A message that was for every last member of that church. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 1, where uh, Paul has addressed this letter to all the saints at Philippi, and specifically with the overseers and the deacons. And so just as this message is for all of them, it's for all of us, every last one of us, every last leader. And it's a message that should cause us to ask, are we a me-centered church or are we a we-centered church? The former is going to weaken us. The latter is going to strengthen us up before our opponents and lead us onto certain salvation on the last day. But how do we go about answering that question? Paul's letter here is written to all of them. And so I think it would be hard to ask this question of all of us and determine if we're a me-centered church or or a we-centered church. So consider this. What's your approach to church? What's your individual approach to church? Is it me-centered or is it we-centered? Paul exhorted the Philippians to become a we-centered church, and he did that by highlighting two things in this morning's passage. First, a we-centered church lives a gospel life. You'll see that in verses 27 and 28. And second, a we-centered church suffers for Christ. You'll see that in verses 29 and 30. So we'll begin by considering that a we-centered church lives a gospel life. And right out of the box here in verse 27, we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this is Paul's big point. This is the thing on which he's Uh, go to hammer right down through chapter 2, verse 18. One scholar described this exhortation as a warning finger that rises up from the page. It's a finger that the uh, apostle raised in letters to the church at Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica. In each of these letters, Paul's exhortation came in two points, but Uh, In the letter to the Philippians, it began in a way that was unique to the rest of them. In the other letters, Paul fundamentally appealed to their um, action as a church. But to the Philippians, he fundamentally appealed to their allegiance. You see the term manner there in verse 27, take a look at it. Manner is rooted in the Greek word polis which is the term from which we get politics. But for the Philippians, it referred to one's citizenship and the importance of being a good citizen. That meant a lot to them since Philippi was a Roman colony and everyone in it had been conferred with Roman citizenship, a status that was envied and desired by the rest of the world and in which the Philippians took great pride. But Paul hadn't appealed to a citizenship that was shaped by Rome. 
Since at the end of the sentence, he appeals to a citizenship that was shaped by the gospel. A heavenly citizenship, uh, uh, he calls it in chapter 3, verse 20. That's the first part of Paul's exhortation here. The second part, Paul wrote, when you consider your heavenly citizenship in relationship to the gospel, make sure that the former is worthy of the latter. That's what makes for a gospel life. The Greek word worthy provided a pair of images that helped the Philippians understand um, and help us understand what he was communicating. Uh, One image had to do with uh, balancing a scale. And in the Philippians' day, that's a scale that we refer to as a double pan balance scale. You know, the kind I'm talking about uh, that's held up by Lady Justice with the blindfold on and courthouses across America or the kind of scale that, that the assayer uses to, to weigh the gold nugget on some old episode of uh, Gunsmoke. Now, the scale image communicated that if the gospel is the standard of measure that's put on this pan, then the manner of life that's put on this pan ought to balance out the scale. And in that way, one's manner of life as a person or as a church was worthy of the gospel. So that's one image of the word worthy. The other image is rooted, same word, but it's, it's the one from which we get the term axis. As you know, the earth spins on an axis. But that axis is actually tilted 23 and a half degrees off vertical. And at that specific angle controls uh, the earth's sunlight and warmth and seasons and even the location of the oceans. Tilt the earth even a half degree off its current axis, and life as we know it would become very different and very difficult. This axis image communicated that if one claims that his or her life is spinning on a Christian axis, then it ought to spin at the very same angle as the gospel of Christ. Not that of the social gospel or the consumer gospel or the feminist gospel or the prosperity gospel or the therapeutic gospel, all of which may be tilted at similar angles, but not at the angle in keeping with the word as received by Paul from Christ according to the scripture. I want to try to flesh this out for you by uh, recounting a recent conversation that took place between a college student and this student's uh, hall director. Uh, this, this student is one uh, whom I know. Uh, the college was not Biola, so uh, blood pressure can go down here. Student is uh, trying to live a life that's spinning on the same axis as the gospel, while the hall director says, subscribes uh, to one spins on one that's more of a therapeutic nature, and, and you'll see uh, how that works itself out in this conversation. I'm going to quote from an email that the student sent to me uh, recounting their, their back and forth. So the, the RD has learned about some difficult circumstances through which this student has gone, has called the student in just to find out how uh, this one is doing. 
And by mid-chat, the hall director is incredulous, incredulous that the student is doing so well. And so the hall director asks, what are you doing in your life that makes you so okay right now? I just don't get it. And the student responded with a laugh, it's Jesus. And the RD was not convinced by the response, so replied, I- I'm sure he's a component, but really, what are you doing? The student said, no, really, it is Jesus. It has to be. All these things I've gone through are out of my control, but not out of the Lord's control. It's up to him how he wants to shape me, even if it hurts. I have to ask myself, do I want what makes me feel good or makes me more like Christ? My answer is always the latter, and it should be since I serve a God who is faithful to shape me in any situation. How can I be bitter if I serve a God like that? To which the hall director responded, I'm sorry for all you've experienced, but I want you to know that it's okay to be bitter. Give yourself permission to sit in your bitterness for a while. God's big enough to handle it. No one expects you to be doing this well. If you need to be bitter, be bitter. So the conversation could have ended right there, but it keeps going. The student says, no, I've got to disagree with you on that one. The Bible informs me that I'm not to be bitter or let a root of bitterness grow up in me. I've seen those who sit in their bitterness and it never leads to the outcome we're looking for, at which point the RD hoists up the white flag and basically says, okay, well, that's just my theology. I find that to be an utterly refreshing example of one working to maintain a life, working to maintain a life that was worthy of the gospel. Not the therapeutic gospel that's so popular today, but the gospel of Christ. Both of these images, the the scale image and the axis image, depict a we-centered gospel life. And we know that based on the outcome of this manner of life as expressed by Paul at the end of verse 27, where he writes, whether I get to see you or not, I hope to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. That that unity, that that we-centeredness to which Paul exhorted the Philippians is really woven throughout this letter, as soon again as chapter two, verse two, where he wrote, be of the same mind, the same love, the one mind. And as late as chapter four, where he exhorts the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord for one, and then two times over in four, four, rejoice in the Lord. Now, It's worth noting here, I think, that standing in one mind and one spirit is not for the purpose of making us uniform persons, you know, Stepford Christians, cookie-cutter Christians, but rather to promote not uniformity, but unity. Unity, like that enjoyed by the differently gifted members of an athletic team. I said it before, Christianity is a team sport. We're all in it together, and each one of you has a specific role to play. 
This, in fact, was another outcome, intended outcome for the Philippian church, since its members were not only to be standing in one spirit and in one mind, but to be striving together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. And that that phrase there, side by side, bespeaks a we-centered image of of persons vigorously, uh, even as Paul implies about three verses later, agonizingly uh, engaged in an athletic contest. I was thinking about that. The first thing that popped into my brain was a rugby scrum. Uh, Without cable TV, without 785 channels on anymore, who in America would ever be watching rugby? But even my daughters were fans of the All Blacks back uh, some years ago. And there you'd see a rugby scrum, one team locked arm in arm, head down, moving right uh, against their opponents who are locked arm in arm coming at them, right? That's a rugby scrum. So that phrase, striving side by side, bespeaks that sort of, of, of uh, unity in our effort together. It betrays the popular image, the me-centered image of Christianity uh, today in which persons leisurely and gently grow toward a spiritual state of self-actualization. See, in truth, the gospel life is one that requires work and struggle and holy sweat which may lead us to ask, may lead you to ask, well then where's the enjoyment in it all? Well, building on Paul's athletic imagery here, I'll I'll put it to you like this. When I was in high school, basketball practice required a lot of work and struggle and sweat, but I loved it. I loved it. All that effort paid off on game day and to this day, by way of the sport's enduring life lessons. The potential unraveling of the Philippian church was most clearly seen, um, and we'll unpack this here in a few weeks, in that disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche, who were no longer we-centered, that is, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, but rather me-centered, Presumably no longer, no longer laboring side by side for the sake of the gospel, chapter 4, verse 3, and in need of being reunited in the Lord, chapter 4, verse 2. And so Paul says there in verse 3, 4, 3, he says, I ask you, help these women. <laughs> Wait into it. Bring them back together. Keep them from succumbing to the degenerative me and and bring them back to that cooperative we. Now, prepare yourself, uh, because I'm going to pay you a compliment, so don't don't get big-headed here when I tell you this. But three weeks from now, Nancy and I will have been here at Grace for three years. And um, since our arrival, one of the things with which we've been especially impressed is your ability to wade in and help the Euodias and the Sintikis in our midst. It's remarkable. Most churches don't respond to these sticky kinds of situations, or, or they do so rarely because it's difficult. 
to walk into a disagreement and to help Euodia and to help Syntyche pull it back together, to agree in the Lord. It's a lot easier to look the other way and hope that somehow and at some time they'll get it worked out. This church walks right into it. It's that effort and commitment to live in a manner that's of equal weight to the gospel of Christ, that's spinning on the same axis as the gospel of Christ. It's that effort and commitment to be unified by standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's that commitment to live a gospel life, a we-centered life that leads a church onto wholeness and health. Not perfection, but a willingness to address the me-centeredness in an effort to help persons enjoy we-centeredness. So I, I commend this church for that. But what's your personal approach to church? Is it me-centered or is it we-centered? Forget walking into a difficult relationship. How about just walking into this place on Sunday morning? What's your approach? Is it about getting uh, my favorite parking space and from there going to grab my favorite donut so I could head off to my favorite service and get into my favorite seat that's near all of my favorite people while hoping for my favorite song to come up on the screen and my favorite preacher to step up into the pulpit? Or... Is it about getting to a parking spot that will leave ones near the building for parents with small children or senior adults? Is it, about, is it about getting that donut and then thanking the persons who were here at 6 a.m. this morning to pick up the donuts and start the coffee before you were even up? Is it about getting to a service that then affords me the chance to pitch in during another service when volunteers are most needed, especially in Sunday school? Is it getting a seat near someone who's new or doesn't look like me or I've never met or is younger than I am or is older than I am? Is it about thoughtfully engaging in the lyrics, whatever song is on the screen, and actively engaging with the preached word, whomever is in the pulpit? That's what keeps us from being a me-centered commodity, which the church is not, fundamentally. It never will be. And it's what makes us feel more like a we-centered family, which is what we are. Well, as the Philippians changed their posture from one that was me-centered to that which was we-centered, Paul assured them that they would find themselves, and you see this there in verse 29, not frightened in anything by their opponents. Things as dangerous as, as Paul was facing, even death, uh, things as disturbing as we face today. I don't think any of us in here uh, are facing death for our faith, but there are some strange and disturbing things that are rising up around us, aren't there? Uh, some of you may have seen the piece done by Al Mohler about a piece that you may have also seen in the Washington Post. Uh, it was uh, printed six days ago, asserting that 
Just as Ralph Northam should resign the governorship of Virginia for his bigoted view of black people, so Mike Pence should resign the vice presidency of the United States for his biblical, ergo bigoted, view of homosexuality. Washington Post. Mueller wrote this. He said, the real issue at stake in this article revolves around objective morality. The truth that morality is fixed, finite, eternally true, and divinely revealed. The real antipathy directed at Pence and to conservative Christians centers on our audacity to draw anything from the pages of Holy Scripture. We dare to say, God said. We dare to believe that God has spoken, that the Bible is his word, that it bears divine authority and is without error. The secular mind cannot accept the audacious claim to believe that true morality flows from God's revelation, that God has spoken and established an order to his creation. The secular elites believe that anyone who holds to a biblical morality is a bigot, and anyone who believes in divine revelation must be an idiot. In the view of the secular culture, that's where we stand. Of course, the perennial question for the church comes down to this. Will we stand? And the answer to Moeller's question is, we will stand. We will stand, not frightened in anything by our opponents. And we will do that as long as we remain committed to standing firm in one spirit and one mind, as well as striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's a we centered church. Which leads us to the second thing that Paul highlighted in this section, and that is a we-centered church suffers for the sake of Christ. See it there in 29 and 30. Notice the two parts of of, uh, verse 29. Paul writes, it's been granted to you, even can be rendered uh, graciously, graciously gifted to you. It has been graciously gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Even the same kind as you saw I had, which the church did see when Paul was at Philippi. You you may recall back in Acts 16, he was attacked and stripped and beaten and jailed. That led to the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family, who may have been seated in the audience as this letter is being read. You saw I had, and now hear that I still have by way of this letter. Suffering for the gospel, according to Paul, is a gift from God. Verse 29 is the indicative upon which the imperative of verse 28 is is built. Suffering was a gift for the Philippian church as it is for us here at Grace because, as in verse 28, it was a clear sign, a clear sign to opponents of their destruction, but of the Philippian salvation and that from God. Scripture doesn't veil suffering for the sake of Christ. It's not some secret that uh, uh, pounces on us when we least expect it, when, the, when, when, when we're in the teeth of suffering. No one can say, well, no one ever told me. Where, where is it in this book that it ever speaks of suffering? 
How much clearer can the Bible be? Paul said, those who desire uh, to live a godly life will be persecuted. And he spoke that on good authority since Jesus, who suffered as an act of gospel service, and Rob Price is going to unpack that for us next week, he, he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And speaking of the prophets, this is why Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And why Peter was rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And why he later wrote, if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is why James could write, count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trial. And we consider those blessed who remain steadfast amidst suffering. This is why Paul also wrote to the Romans, we rejoice in our suffering. To the Corinthians, I'm content with weakness and insults, hardships and persecutions. To the Colossians, I rejoice in my suffering. In fact, Paul told the believers in Asia Minor that tribulations were necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And to those in Rome, that God used suffering to work out things for their good. I think Mo Moises Silva was absolutely right when he incisive, incisively observed, if our requests to God, which so often arise from our afflictions, are to be brought with thanksgiving, according to chapter 4, verse 6, then clearly the believer is being taught to view sufferings in a positive light. So again, what's your... What's your approach to church? Is it me-centered or is it we-centered? If it's me-centered, then it's going to be characterized uh, uh, by an occupation, preoccupation with self and suffering. I don't want to suffer. And is putting grace, this church, in the same peril that the Philippians faced. And that is to be a church that was no longer able to go on for its intended purpose. But if your approach to church is we-centered, then it's gonna be characterized by a, a manner of life that's uh, of, of equal weight to the gospel, spinning on the same axis as the gospel of Christ, a manner of life that's expressed by a, a corporate athletic effort to stand firm in one mind, in one spirit, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's in that way that the Philippians grew in their tight fabric capacity to firmly believe in and fearlessly suffer for the sake of Christ. Dealing with their opposition, as Gordon Fee put it, by loving them to death. 
And if that's the standard of life to which called, God called the Philippians, then that's the standard of life to which he calls us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we have occasion to look in the mirror today, we would be honest enough to see ourselves for who we really are. Me-centered, looking out for number one, but wanting to be we-centered, looking out for others. Lord, uh, we pray that... uh, We would be ones who build things up and not tear things down. Help us to agree in the Lord. Help us to serve side by side. Help us to be strong in these ways for the day of testing, which is coming and is already rising up before us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.